Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but could not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, He has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may again and be may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up, was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's begin in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word and for what it reveals to us about you and your character. I pray this morning that you would give each of us open ears open minds 
and open hearts for what you want to say to each and every one of us. Amen. Okay. Close your eyes for a moment and try to imagine this scenario. You are a young person living in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, trained as a Pharisee under the teaching of one of the most respected Pharisees of this time, a man named Gamaliel. Now, the Pharisees have an important role to play in this present Israel. Once the Greeks had conquered Israel, following the Israelites' return from exile, there was a large rise in more liberal theologies, dismissing the authority and relevance of the Torah in this modern time. The Pharisees arose as a movement opposed to this teaching, affirming the instructions of the Torah, advocating a lifestyle centered around purity and obeying the law of God. The people, by and large, respect our authority, and they rely on us to shepherd them through life. As a relatively young Pharisee, you hear, along with the rest of Israel, about a radical new preacher in Galilee performing miraculous signs. The tales you hear horrify you. Healing on the Sabbath, intrigued, you observe his ministry, even getting into a few lively discussions at times. People are calling him the Messiah. Israel has awaited their Messiah for over a thousand years, the prophets repeatedly assuring them that God was faithful to his promises and would deliver a man to rescue them from their plight. The work he does is clearly good, but how can this be the Messiah? He acts completely contrary to the way which we as Pharisees know to be God's will. He has a complete disregard for the Sabbath and eats with sinners. He hangs out with the unclean and seems utterly disinterested in the Roman oppression we are experiencing. Worse, he claims to be God himself. How can this man possibly be the Messiah? Thankfully, whilst you're in Jerusalem celebrating Passover, this whole debacle is put to rest. To your great approval, this blasphemer is arrested, humiliated, and killed through the most heinous punishment Rome has devised for its criminals, crucifixion. That should have been the end of it. However, weirdly, a few weeks later, there are people wandering around proclaiming that this man has risen from the dead and was the Messiah. Sure, the tomb was discovered to be empty, but they must have simply stolen the body. To your horror, the people begin to believe the words of these liars. Something must be done. Your former teacher, Gamaliel, warns fellow Pharisees not to intervene. For if these people are not of God, their movement will quickly fade. But if they speak the truth, then we would be opposing God himself. Again, though, how can this man be the Messiah? This movement needs to stop. You encounter a man named Stephen preaching about this Jesus. His words anger many in the crowd, and they look to you for wisdom. Irrespective of the fact that only Rome has the power to kill a man, you approve of their anger and oversee his stoning. You increase this persecution, targeting many more of these Christians. You will scare this message underground until it fades away. After hearing of Christians appearing in Damascus, you ask and are allowed by the high priest to head there and arrest any that you find. You head off towards Damascus, and then as you approach the city, you are struck blind by a brilliant light. A voice emerges. Why do you persecute me? Who are you? 
you ask. I am Jesus, the voice replies. This is the story of Paul, of Saul, who becomes Paul. And although the Bible is relatively silent on his actions before we encounter him at Stephen's execution, as a young Pharisee, it's highly likely that he would have interacted with someone such as Jesus, and he would almost certainly have been in Jerusalem celebrating Passover when Jesus was executed. To be honest, even if, this isn't, if that wasn't the case for whatever reason, we know from his actions within Acts regarding Stephen and from the words he says in his letters that he was clearly opposed to this new movement and to the messianic claims that Jesus was making. He was determined to destroy this Christian movement, but then on that road to Damascus, everything changed. I think it's difficult to overstate the gravity of the situation that now would have hit Paul. Israel had been waiting for salvation from their Messiah for over a thousand years, and not only have the people by and large missed this Messiah and not recognised him, but the Pharisees and Paul had led the people into killing the Messiah who God had sent them. Furthermore, Paul had spent the last few, last few um, months hunting down and murdering the few Jews who had actually recognised Jesus as God's Messiah. And even worse, arguably, than how his actions affected those believers, he would have been instrumental in pushing thousands, tens of thousands of people away from the truth. And who knows if they ever would have recognised Jesus for who he actually was. Just as Gamaliel had warned, the Pharisees and Paul had been actively working against the very God that they served and loved. As leaders, they had failed, and the people's trust in them had been entirely misplaced. I don't know how you would even begin to process this information if you're in Paul's shoes. Like Paul spent his entire life studying the scriptures in devotion to God, and now he would recognise just how far he actually was from the truth. And yet, despite how far he was, Paul would now go down as certainly the second most influential person in church history behind only Jesus himself. He spread the news of Jesus throughout the entire Mediterranean, um, planting numerous churches, and his writings now make up almost half of the whole New Testament and are probably the second most taught from section in the Bible behind the Gospels. How does a man as lost and far away from God's heart as Paul accomplish so much in his life? The answer is simple. It's God. Paul's lostness is completely insignificant when compared to the grace and love of God. In the Damascus encounter, Paul finds a forgiveness and love unlike anything he would have ever experienced before. All his failures, all his misconceptions, all his shortcomings, they are all washed away. There is no one beyond the reach of God's mercy and love, and no one who God cannot use for his purposes. We should remember this if, when we happen to be sharing the news of God to people. There are stories of Islamic State terrorists who, performing similar persecutions to Paul, have life-altering encounters with Jesus. And often those who seem furthest from God 
are the ones who encounter him. At a simple evangelistic level, we should never seek to prejudge who is worth sharing the gospel with. Paul didn't. Instead, he went wherever God instructed him to go, preaching in the synagogues to the Jewish community and on the streets to the Gentiles. As Paul says in Romans 1, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Paul's ministry is centred around this grace of God, and how could it not be after going through what he experienced? This first-hand encounter of the grace and mercy of God on the road to Damascus propelled him to share this news with everyone. Immediately after this passage, the end of chapter 9, he goes into the middle of Damascus, into the synagogues, and starts preaching about this Jesus he suddenly met. And the people rise up and try to kill him. And so he escapes and goes to Jerusalem. And he does the same thing. He goes out. He can't help himself. He goes out and preaches. And immediately the people, again, try to kill him, and he has to flee away. In Romans 9 to 11, Paul uh, lays out his sadness that so few of his Jewish brethren had accepted Jesus as Lord. And yet, he ends this section with hope that one day they would see the truth. However desperate their situation seemed, he had been rescued from worse and knew God could do the same. I think a related point for us as Christians would be that in light of God's grace and life-altering tendencies, we should never hold a person's past against their present ministry. We have no right to question God's using of particular people in particular ways. And had the early church responded to Paul in such a way, then who knows how different church history would be today. On a more personal note, I think this account should give us hope that no matter where we have been, no matter where we are right now, God is able to use us in his plans. The parable of the lost sheep, which we heard earlier, is part of a three-part sort of parable series, along with the parable of the lost coin and the lost or prodigal son that we heard from right at the beginning of the service. It's a famous parable. In it, the youngest father, we're introduced to a father with two sons, and the younger son effectively wishes his father dead, demanding his inheritance. After receiving it, he squanders it and comes home seeking forgiveness. I think there are a lot of aspects of this parable that are often overlooked by us as modern readers, but I'll quickly highlight first just three. First, as we heard at the beginning of the service, when his father sees the younger son approaching, he runs out of the house to meet him. Now, this is... um, By running, the father brings great shame upon himself within the culture. And... But he does this out of love for the son. Before the son has got anywhere near and has offered any sort of apology or any sort of reparation for the loss that he's caused, the father charges out and runs down to his son. Also to rescue his son... For as the son approached the house, the nearby villagers would have intercepted the son and killed him for the humiliation that he'd caused his father. The 
the father's love for the son compels him to put aside his sort of own pride and, and worrying about what others may consider of his actions and charge out to rescue and meet his son. Secondly, the father clothes, clothes the feet of his son with sandals. Now, it may seem an insignificant detail, but in that culture, the people in the house who did not wear shoes were the servants, and they were typically working off debts in the service of the father. By clothing his son with shoes, the father is saying that no matter what you've lost, you owe me nothing. And that's just the same when we sort of return to God, that everything is wiped away. Finally, just in the aspect of service, the son is given a family ring, a signet ring. And with such a ring, the son has the legal right to make decisions on behalf of his father's estate. Now, for us today, this ring is the Holy Spirit that dwells within each of us. God calls each of us into various positions of service, and whatever our past, whatever our age, whatever our abilities or lack thereof, it is the same Holy Spirit who is with each and every one of us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Ultimately, it is the Holy Spirit that accomplishes God's purposes in our work for him, and therefore our own shortcomings are utterly irrelevant when the Holy Spirit is with us. Perhaps some people here feel like the prodigal son or have lived the prodigal lifestyle before returning to God. Perhaps some people here just feel a general sense of lostness, a distance from God for whatever reason. If that is you this morning, then please do speak to myself or John or a member of the prayer ministry team who I assume will be up at the rail at the end of the service. The lesson of Paul is that no matter how lost we are, God is capable, of willing, capable and willing to find us and pull us back to him. And once he has found us, there are no limits to what he can accomplish through us. Perhaps over this series, you have felt God calling you in a particular direction, but you are reluctant to go. Again, if this is you, please speak to someone after the service. The parable of the prodigal son and the parable of the lost sheep offer just a glimpse of the love of God. Um, we're going to watch a short video clip, which I think does a great job of visually summing up the love God has for us, despite our many wanderings away from him. Maybe use this time to reflect upon these passages and anything God has stirred in your heart. However lost we have been, however lost we feel right now, we have a God who is both able and willing to come and find us. Amen.